dissenting voices. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast here in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com. Jeremy's work, of course, is at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com down in San Antonio. Jeremy, this has been a week of dissenting voices, people who don't agree, and in some cases, making a difference. In other cases, just being heard, which is also important. We made the uh, point last week on the show that even if someone isn't successful in their fight, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have fought it, right? Or, or that it's anywhere close to over, right? I mean, a, a lot of these things happen over the course of multiple legislative sessions, which think about it this way at the Texas Capitol. If something takes two or three or four legislative sessions, which I have seen that happen on issue after issue for the needle to really be moved, and then the policymakers get to a point where they're willing to make a change on something, you're talking about a decade's worth of work just about, right? I mean, the the lead up to the first session where you try to make it happen, by the time you get to the third or fourth session, you've been at it for 10 years, whatever it is the thing you're working on. And I want to start with the Uvalde families who got jerked around again this week at the Capitol. Uh, we mentioned them last week, and I got some feedback from listeners who said that they had to turn the show off, as I suggested, as we got to the final details about what unfolded uh, during the massacre um, at the Robb Elementary School. Um, well, here's what happened this week. Some of the Uvalde families were led to believe, and I don't know who led them to, to believe this. They probably could have called me and I would have said, hey, save yourself for the trip. This is probably not going to happen. Uh, but they were led to believe that in a special committee of the Texas House, the bill, you know, the main bill that they're concerned about, which is raising the age uh, for the legal purchase of certain firearms, they thought that bill was going to get voted out of committee. And some of them made the trek once again to the Texas Capitol, which from, from Uvalde, how far is that? Four hours? Yeah. At least something yeah. like that, four and a half, five hours, depending on traffic in San Antonio or wherever you, however you come. Um, it did not happen, of course. That bill did not get a vote in committee. I don't expect it to get a vote in committee. And we're so late now in the legislative session that it's you know probable that even if it was voted out of committee, it is not going to be Texas law. That is not going to happen, right? This has been an interesting bit of kabuki theater. Usually at the, uh, at the Capitol, I see kabuki theater that might have to do with uh, some conservative legislation that maybe leadership doesn't really want to pass but they made it make it kind of look like they were trying to pass it, you know, and that, and that's often the criticism of some folks, uh, you know, on the right who will say that, oh, you know, Republicans really aren't as conservative as they say they are when they're campaigning and all that sort of stuff. On this, it's been a little bit of kabuki theater, I think, for some folks who are looking for something that's a little more progressive policy wise. But as you have pointed out over and over again, the folks who were impacted by the shooting are not you know, democratic activists, longtime politicos, anything like that. They haven't been doing that sort of thing. They, they were just affected by this tragedy. Uh, Brett Cross, whose son Uzziah was killed during the shooting. He was uh, in Austin once again. He's been here off and on ever since the shooting. Uh, and he's been pressing for the legislature to raise the age to 21 for the legal purchase of certain firearms. And he was, of course, disappointed when this committee did not take action on that bill. Another day and no vote on SB 2744. The committee that votes on it was in session today, but Chairman Guillen did not put it up for a vote. I spoke to him afterwards and he said that he had already been assured that it would not pass the House so that he wasn't going to put it up for a vote. We need to call and email, and I will list them down below, and demand, we're not asking anymore, 
We're fucking demanding that he put it up for a vote so that we can get it out of committee so that we can get votes on it. Now, when that hearing played out um, a couple weeks ago in the Texas House, it was an all-night hearing, and this happens at the legislature quite a bit, where the committees will meet in the morning, and then they have to take a break. This is part of the rules, by the way. They have they have to take a break when the entire House meets, because by rule, the committees can't meet while the House is meeting, uh, unless they make an exception, which, of course, they did not for this. So you had folks who showed up at 7.30 in the morning to come testify about the most horrific thing that's ever happened to them or to anybody in their community or anybody in the state, anybody in this country, just about, as you said before, you could compare the story and the way it played out to what happened on nine 11. This is just awful, just horrific. Um, and so they came to the Capitol early in the morning and a lot of them didn't get to testify until late at night. We're talking after 10 o'clock around midnight and later, right? Kim Rubio, uh, who was also affected by all this, uh, she testified in that hearing, and this is a little hard to listen to, but she compared having to wait at the Capitol to testify. She compared that to waiting after the shooting in Uvalde to have the confirmation that her child had been killed. I arrived here today at 8 a.m., and as we waited more than 13 hours, I'm reminded of May 24th, 2022, when we waited hours to be told our daughter would never come home. I expressed confusion then, and I'm perplexed now. Did you think we would go home? <laughs> Senator Roland Gutierrez has been pushing for change after Uvalde. Of course, his district includes uh, that community. And he's, of course, running into brick walls at the Capitol. The Republican leadership's not going to move any of the stuff that these families are interested in. Uh, there are reports now that he may challenge Senator Ted Cruz for his U.S. Senate seat. He's gotten a lot of attention over the last year. Um, Democrats may be looking for somebody to run for that seat against uh, Cruz. I'm sure they will be. Uh, but at least for now, Gutierrez told reporters at the Capitol he's not interested in even talking about that. He wants to keep the focus on what happened with these people. What's most important to me is my community and these families. Um, I, I don't... I was told by one of these leaders that there's a reason we don't watch the body cam footage. That's just bullshit. 70, for 77 minutes, cops failed. I needed to watch hundreds of hours of body cam. I needed to do that to see how the failure was. And the failure was gross and extreme and far grosser than what you guys have been, as has been leaked through different sources. The cops were afraid of the AR-15. A little girl stood up and put her hands up to defend herself. There was 13 other kids that survived that defended themselves by playing dead and calling the cops. Little girls that were far more braver, little boys that were far more braver than the police on that place. And the men in this building that run this building don't want to even have a discussion on transparency. So my future doesn't matter. The next five weeks is what matters to all Texas families. He says basically the politics of all of it can come later. Of course, there are politics involved uh, at the Capitol anytime they're in session. Uh, but Jeremy, these families, it's, it's really inspiring to me that they have just not given up. There's no quit in them whatsoever. They have been here, remember, uh, for, for, for a year and for months during this legislative session, you know, rallying outside the governor's office uh, and outside of his mansion 
um, early in the morning. I think at one point they were in front of the governor's mansion at 5 a.m. And, 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 you know, they were up there at 435 o'clock in the morning blaring on the bullhorn that if they can't sleep, then he shouldn't be able to sleep either. Uh, they've been showing up for these committee hearings, showing up for that uh, demonstration that you attended that was so hard to listen to uh, the speakers who were there, including the young children. Um, but they keep hitting those brick walls, but they're not stopping. Yeah, well, one of the things that drives me crazy about this Texas legislature, uh, and we've had it happen over and over again. You saw what happened with these, you know, families from Uvalde. And it was just a couple of weeks ago. A similar thing happened to those people who were fighting uh, the the uh, effort to kill DEI programs. If you remember, they came in here at eight a.m. and waited thirteen hours to be able to testify. And the thing that drives me nuts is like it's one thing when you do that to the hired lobbyists who are all around Austin. It doesn't change their day too much whether they have to testify in the morning or at night. But for the regular people who don't know how this system operates, they see that time where they have to be there and they show up at 8 a.m. These are regular people who come from mm-hmm. all over the state. Think of all these bills that they think that they're going to be have their voice heard. They're, like m- Many of them who have never been involved in the government process at all. This is mm-hmm. their first time ever to the state capitol to a committee hearing to testify, yeah. and they're going to be waiting 13 hours. In the case in that DEI, you had these college kids right before a break trying to hold out long enough. There were 168 people who signed up, and only a fraction of them ended up speaking because it just went on too long. They couldn't right. stay there. And the same thing happening here with you know these families in Uvalde is like just making them have to wait forever. It's like again, I'm okay with like doing it for the lobbyists and the the bills you know have like you know yeah. the the regular suspects essentially but these aren't the regular suspects these are like regular human beings who didn't sign up to do this to begin with they're just fighting for their families and we're jerking them around you know, not only making them you know spend all this time on the road but then it's like well we might meet at eight but don't go too far because it might be at nine or 10 right. or 11 or whatever the house is getting a break. The mm-hmm. Senate did that where it's like, oh, okay, we're going to have a break suddenly at noon and now we're going to go back down there and meet. And so you have all these people trying to finish their lunch. They hustle down there and go, oh, by the way, we're not going to pick up that DEI bill after all. Mm-hmm. It's like we, we as good government – like it, it just doesn't feel right to jerk around the families of like yeah. of these folks or of any, any like regular people. You can figure out where the regular people are coming out to testify. Just give them a little chance to get their word out. Don't jerk them around. Mm-hmm. Let them have an okay time. And, and the other thing that's driving me crazy about this, nobody's like just telling these families, look, they're not going to vote this bill out for a very specific reason. They can't. You know, the Republicans in, in, in district where they're com- going to be competitive with Democrats, they mm-hmm. can't be voting to raise the uh, to not raise the age. Right. They have to right. do that. And they can. So they're looking out for those members in those suburban areas. Hello, Houston. Hello, San Antonio. You yep. don't want to risk losing any of those guys, you know, in a house that only has a nine seat majority right now. You can't afford to lose too many more until it becomes a crisis. So they're not going to make them take that vote. No matter what happens, no matter who testifies, they're not going to do it. And I wish somebody would explain to these families. It's just like as sad as it is, they can have impact in moving the rest of us, but the bill can't go for a vote. They're not going to let it happen. Yeah, it's been the tradition in the Texas legislature to not move forward with a bill, you know, with a vote on it, if the votes are not there to pass it. Right. And the thought has been 
that you don't want to cut up the members with uh, having to be on the record about something like what you're talking about, right? They, they don't want to have had to, to, to say yes or no to whatever this legislation is. And uh, dear listener, I would like you to keep what I just said in mind as we talk about a few other things here, because it's interesting. Some things did come to the floor of the Texas House that did not pass, that didn't have the votes at all. Very interesting to see which things move and which things do not. I saw where there were all these protesters. We're talking about dissenting voices here. All these protesters at the Capitol over fentanyl. Uh, first of all, there was a bill in the Texas House uh, to crack down further uh, when there is a death that involves fentanyl. And in the gallery of the House, there were some protesters there who were chanting uh, basically, no more drug war. Of course, that bill passed. Uh, in the meantime, some protesters uh, with a group called Texas Harm Reduction Alliance showed up at Senator Joan Huffman's office. And Jeremy, what did this have to do that with? Uh, was this the uh, the testing strips for fentanyl? Yeah, fentanyl testing strips are kind of the thing that, like, a lot of people are saying. Look, if we get more of those out into the community, people can test what they're about to take to make sure it's not laced with this stuff that's going to kill them. Right? Even the mm-hmm. governor has said he's willing to, you know, to support that. Uh, so there's a lot of support. The House, there's a lot of House support, but in the Senate, the idea of legalizing, you know, fentanyl test strips has gone nowhere. It hasn't even seen the light of day. It's not moving at all, and it has very little prospects right now. Yeah, and so you heard uh, these folks who were outside Senator John Huffman's office, and uh, she was not in the office, by the way. But they were demanding that she get this legislation moving through the process. What is- As I understand this, Jeremy, the politics of it uh, kind of um, mirror and echo, I, I, I guess I should go with echo, because this seems to have died down a lot now, um, sort of the, the same politics as the needle exchange programs that were pushed years ago, uh, where basically you could do so. And I remember a very conservative Republican state senator named Bob Duell from uh, east of Dallas. He was in favor of the needle exchange program. He was a medical doctor. Imagine that. You know, he, he could see, you know, there would be a health benefit for people. Uh, it's one of the things, though, and here's the key, and this goes to what you were talking about with the guns. This goes to what we're talking about with this, with this particular part of the fentanyl uh, policy debate. Um, Dr. Duell was defeated in a Republican primary, and part of it was based on his support of the needle exchange program. Right. He was he was beaten by Bob Hall, who is said to be a much more conservative Republican. So this is one of those things where uh, some of those senators just don't want to touch it, Jeremy. Yeah. And think about it like the, the marijuana legislation, too. So there was a bill that passed the House uh, to change the penalties for having a small a possession of small amounts of marijuana. So it's you know not a jailable offense. And so there's still a fine. So it's still illegal, but you're not going to go to jail for it. But that, again, is not going to get picked up in the Senate. The Senate is against everything you just said. I've kind of started to classify it as, you know, the Senate is basically run by Nancy Reagan. You know, for those of you from the 1980s, remember, don't you know, just say no. You know, that was the entire way right. to kind of help somehow fight the drug war uh, was to just tell people don't just don't do it. It's like and so they're afraid that anything you do to make sure like, you know, some sleeping pill isn't laced with fentanyl is somehow right. encouraging people to go get heroin, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, okay, wait, 
we got to do something. We got something's got to give. You can't go around the state talking about how fentanyl's killing our kids and then right. say, well, we're not going to give them test strips to make sure. We're just going to tell them don't do the drug, just like we're going to do with marijuana. Just don't do yeah. it. And we're going to tell them to do it with, you know, the needle exchange program. No, no, just don't do it. It's like, right. come on, this is 1982 rhetoric and it's yes. not working in 2023 in case anybody wanted to check the calendar. <laughs> well, if they, if they don't need to check the calendar, it didn't work then either. Exactly. Right. It, it didn't work in the 80s either. Right. The, the drug war has been a, what a trillion dollar exercise by the United States. And what has it gotten us? You hear from the mouths of Republican politicians every day on Fox News and at the Texas Capitol and everywhere else that all of this is as bad as it has ever been. Yeah. And it's amazing that I thought that libertarian wave that came in through the Republican Party for, uh, when, with Ron Paul and all that world, it felt like they were going to start moving this like, at least like, OK, let's not lock people up from marijuana anymore. Let's kind of like be rational. But, but that's gone all of a sudden. And all of a sudden you're waking up in 2023 and like the, the Texas Senate is not going to touch anything that, to, that looks remotely like they're you know, saying drug use is OK, which that's not what any of these bills do. It's like these bills are just saying, we don't want you to die. You know, we don't think the punishment for doing this substance that's illegal, we don't think the punishment should be death. You know, it's like that's – I think – can't we all agree on that? Everything has to be punitive instead of trying to figure out what would solve the problem on the front end. Uh, this has been basically the, the point of contention all throughout on these, these drug issues. Just say no. Just say no. Just say no. Yeah, well – the kids aren't doing that. The kids were never doing that. And so we might want to try something else. Um, this uh, piece of legislation that we talked about early in the session that has to do with restricting who can buy real estate in Texas, what I'll say it this way, quote unquote, what kind of people can buy real estate in Texas? I was talking with a Republican state senator who said, why don't they just move forward with something that would say, look, if somebody was um, – suspected or convicted of spying on the United States, then we could take their land back from them through eminent domain. Why not do that? You know, have some actual due process and be thoughtful about it. And, and, and say it this way, no matter what country they came from, right? I mean, if somebody was a turncoat and they were from the United States, but it turned out they were a double agent, you know, and they were helping Russia, well, you could take their ranch out in Washington County, you know, and we would use it for some state purpose. What's the latest on this bill by Lois Kolkhorst, uh, who I think, from everything I saw, Jeremy, uh, on the Senate floor, she had to do a lot of walking back. Yeah, Senate Bill 147. This has just been a part of certainly my life and a lot of people's lives, and you know, particularly in Houston, uh, where, again, there's a huge Asian-American population there, and this really had a big impact. So what this bill initially did was bar any, you know, foreign, uh, the foreign governments of China Russia, North Korea, and Iran uh, from buying land in Texas. But it also you know, said any citizen from those countries. And, and there was no exceptions in there. So if you were a citizen of China who had come to the U.S. and you know, were trying to become an American citizen and you wanted to buy, I don't know, say a condo next to your, your grandkids or something, you mm -hmm. wouldn't have been able to do it in that first version. People obviously lost their minds on that. I don't even yeah. think Lois Kokors intended for that to be the case. In fact, she told me, you know, early on the process and go, look, I'm hearing it. I'm going to fix this. And so she then made some changes to the bill that she thought would address it. 
still wasn't enough. You know, she ended up right. like, you know, she did make some exceptions in there, uh, you know, for, you know, for people who are legal green card holders from those three countries. But there's so many other, you know, concerns about what you're still like you know, limiting, you know, where people, you know, from these countries and, 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 more to the point, as you know, Senator John Whitmire from Houston said on the floor, mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're you're making it sound like people from China are worth like some extra scrutiny that others aren't, and that you know a, that ends up sending this message to people that it's okay to distrust people who look like they're from China, and that just mm-hmm. puts this added emotional burden on the people who live in our community who are Americans. They're absolutely American citizens, and here right. they are. They're going to have to prove that they're not too recently from China. Well, long story made a lot shorter, Cocourse hears all this stuff and starts walking the bill back this week. She ended up a changing lot. the legislation uh, to make sure it would only apply to uh, people from those countries or in the governments who are trying to buy farmland, timberland, mining land, lands with mineral rights, so think oil and gas. So mm-hmm. she tried to kind of limit it to things that I, we don't want like foreign governments having access to that. Still big problem. But what I love about this story so much, this is a case where the protests in Houston, in Austin, just this week in Katy, like Asian American communities and others. It wasn't just them. It's like, you know, I, I like the fact that it wasn't just like, okay, the Chinese Americans can go fight this. Mm-hmm. If you looked in Houston, it was like everybody. <laughs> it was like, it looked like the diversity of Houston coming out to mm-hmm. protest. You know, out front of her office in Katy, Texas, there was a big protest. And I right. think all of it in the end ultimately did have an impact. In mm-hmm. fact, Lois Kokers actually even says on the floor that she like, she was struggling to find the balance on this as she heard from all the players. And that's why she was, you know, taking a much different approach to it. So this is a case where it's like, man, I just thinking this is, you know, the little guy actually did okay here. Mm-hmm. It completely reminds me of like Willie Nelson. Uh, and yeah, you know, when he went like, to, you know, it's his birthday weekend. <laughs> There's no way Willie Nelson wasn't going to men- be mentioned on the show. And everybody listening knows that. All right, <laughs> but yep. he went through this reggae phase where like he did some music that speaks to this, like the underdog standing up and actually maybe succeeding at some point. Yeah, right. Because like you said, you know, the harder they come, the harder they fall. And the harder they come, the harder they fall. One and all. There you go, Jeremy. Do you feel um Vindicated now. You got in. You got in a Willie Nelson reference and and a reggae version at that. Yeah, and I didn't have to pay the four thousand dollars it would take me to go to Los Angeles for his big <laughs> birthday party, which is yeah. like a lot cheaper. <laughs> yes. Um, well, but we also mentioned marijuana policy, so it all dovetails very nicely. Did you see that uh, Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller ruffled some feathers? Imagine that over his new dress code. For the Texas Sid Department Miller? of Agriculture, yeah, he had some pe- <laughs> he had some people upset. Remember, he's the one who at the Trump rallies, not just the one in Waco, but I think at the one up in uh, Montgomery County um, that you attended as well. Uh, Miller talked about the idea that it's not just you know Democrats versus Republicans anymore, or conservatives versus liberals. Now he says it's patriots versus traitors. He's very very adamant about that. You know, he's a, when I first got into all this stuff, y'all, 
it was Republicans versus Democrats. I was like, yeah, it was Republicans versus Republicans when he got beaten in his primary for Texas House. He's the only one that I could remember, Jeremy, who lost a seat in the Texas House in a primary, then went on to be a statewide official. And then I was Amazing. corrected about that. <laughs> well, I was I was correct I was corrected about that. I'm not right. The other one is uh, Wayne Christian, who's on the Railroad Commission. He also lost a seat in the Texas House. How do you like that? I so, that. so Miller, <laughs> it's, it's this this brain. It's like encyclopedic about all this. <laughs> Completely worthless uh, unless you're at some really boring cocktail party, dear listener. Um, Ag Commissioner Miller told the employees at the uh, at the agency that their attire must match their biological gender. There was um, a memo that went out where that statement was, I think, in the first two sentences. It was, you know, kind of a long memo, but the, basically the the, you know, the thrust of it right out of, right out of the out of the shoot was, I'm using rodeo terms because we're talking about Sid Miller, who you know was a, ra- a rodeo champion. Miller told his staff that they can't, men can't be dressing like women and vice versa. But I didn't really see where there was where there were any examples of that happening at the TDA at the Texas Department of Agriculture. I'm told that there are some transgender employees there. That that's that, but not there may be one, right? And and that there's there has never been any problem with you know any of the personnel there based on that. Uh, but he had some more, he had a little more to say about this uh, when he was in Quero. Yeah, as I, you know, the Victoria Advocate had a story on him being down in Cuero, uh, and, and they asked him about it, obviously, because how can you not ask him about this? Uh, mm-hmm. And he's and he he blamed it on the pandemic, and like after okay. the pandemic, the dress codes have gotten so you know out of whack. And his quote to them was, "When we came back to the office after being closed during COVID pandemic, I noticed pajamas and stuff you wear to the gym." Uh, <laughs> we have foreign ambassadors yeah. who visit our office. I want my staff to look professional while they're here. So, uh, so he ended up saying Crocs and flip-flops are no go at the office too. So, so he's really spending a lot of time on this, which makes me only want to go to the department of agriculture and see what are they dressing like? I want to see, <laughs> are they walking around in Crocs over there in pajamas? Like he's saying, <laughs> well, in the Victoria advocate and I grew up reading the Victoria advocate, you know, we got it in Wharton County. Um, I love the writing in the newspaper after that quote in the newspaper story, it says Miller did not specify how restricting clothing to an employee's biological gender would address the wearing of pajamas, Crocs, flip flops, and other informal clothing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How are they related? I don't even get it. (laughs) I just love the matter of factness of that statement in the, in the story. But so, so what are they wearing over there? Uh, Republican activist Weston Martinez. And I can't tell if he was making fun of Sid Miller or if he was trying to back him up. But he put out a media on social. Uh, he put out a uh, a video on social media, uh, demonstrating how you might dress as a biological male if you worked at the Texas Department of Agriculture. Number one, you can dress as a cowboy professional. Many people see the ag commissioner Sid Miller dressed like this. Number two, Texas business casual. Number three, Texas formal, a suit with boots. And the number four way you can dress if you're a biological male is cowboy casual. Because everybody knows, sometimes you just want to relax a little bit on a Friday afternoon. Oh, I know I do. All right, I'm done with that story. No more attention for Sid Miller on that. Um, Did you see on the floor of the Texas House this week, they uh, voted down a bill that would ban corporal punishment in Texas public schools. And I, I got questions from 
some of our readers wondering if that's something that even happens anymore. It, it was an emotional debate. I can tell you that. And it's a debate that's been going on for 25, 30 years. People yeah, have talked about this forever. I think since 1845, it's been going on in Texas. Right? Yeah, well, I mean, it goes back to the Bible, right? <laughs> Um, you know, go, goes back pre-Texas. Um, it was emotional. The Texas House voted 86 to 58 to reject Dr. Alma Allen's bill. Um, she's a state representative from Houston and an educator. Um, and she wanted to ban corporal punishment in public schools. She's been working on this for a long time. I'm mentioning the fact that the bill went down on the floor for a reason. Remember what I told you earlier. There is a practice of, of trying to make sure that if a bill is going to fail on the floor, that it doesn't even get to the floor, right? Yeah. But I think a lot of Republicans, to the point you made earlier about the guns, Jeremy, how they wouldn't want a vote on that, they do want a vote on this, right? They want to be able to say they voted against getting rid of corporal punishment in public schools in Texas. Um, Matt Schaefer is a Republican from Tyler, uh, one of the conservative thought leaders in the House, I would put it that way. And he was a proud no vote on this. Our children are made in God's image. They're given to parents to raise and to care for. And under current state law, a public school cannot use corporal punishment without the parent's consent. That's current law. So if a school paddles a student, they're doing so with the parent's consent. Now that God who made those children gave us some advice for our children. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Yeah, I can see it on mail pieces now, Jeremy. It yeah. proudly voted against getting rid of corporal punishment in schools. I mentioned that it's almost impossible to know all across the state whether this is still happening. Someone texted me uh, as this debate was unfolding and said, what is this, 1985? Is anybody still even doing that? I told this person that I remember in the Louise ISD where I grew up, um, I believe I was, if I remember right, I was paddled at school as recently as 1990 or 1991, something like that. So it was still happening there in those different places. And I remember uh, at the time that this would be done by the school administrator, by the principal, and they would call your parents first to tell them that this was happening. And so I guess... I don't know what the law was exactly at that time. I think now what it is, is if there's a school that, that has corporal punishment as one of their disciplinary measures, then it's just like one of the other forms that you fill out when you enroll the kid, right? That uh, you, you'd say whether you want it to be used or not. At that time, they may have just reached out to the parent directly. I do know this, that in 1990 or 1991, if the school district called your parents and said that you were going to get paddled at school, that was nothing compared to what you were going to face when you got home. Yeah. I know that. Do you know what it means? Brandon, do you know what it means to go pick your switch? <laughs> yes, I do. I, I've you never do. experienced okay. it myself, but I... Well, I have. I have absolutely had that happen multiple times, and um, it ain't pleasant, let me tell you. But uh, the idea that we're still arguing about, I, I think this is kind of phony. I, I think that the, the idea that we're still debating whether or not it's okay to hit kids at school is ridiculous. For the vast majority of school districts... They're not doing that. I have. I don't even know, and maybe I'll be corrected about this. I don't even know where they still do that. Um, and as Schaefer said, look, it's also an opt-in, opt-out kind of thing. Parents ha have to be asked about it first uh, if that's going to happen. But you know, by and large, society's kind of moved past this. But it kind of tells you where the politics of the Texas House in Republican primaries is, right? Which is that if this came up, 
you would want to be one of the Republicans who voted no to get rid of corporal punishment. Yeah, one of the things I learned firsthand in the 1990s was that the vice principals who administered the licks didn't necessarily have great training. <laughs> you know, it's like they might give you a little extra oomph if, say, I don't know, you were the editor of the high school newspaper that they were upset with. And yes, <laughs> you know, if any John Marshall High School, uh, you know, alum are listening to this, it happened at the rampage. I actually got whacked. And I still think it was because of the stuff I had just written. Uh, and not so much for whatever, like I was late for something, you know, but yeah, and back in that time, they didn't call your parents right away. They just, you know, you just could opt in, opt out right then, you know, and I mm -hmm. opted in like a, like a moron thinking that the, uh, the vice principal was going to give me a little extra oomph on it. But so, so that raises the question of how do you train school administrators to do this appropriately? and not go overboard. Like, right. will the administrator, like, and, and I'm not to bring race into everything. I know I'm going to get that complaint, but like, what are, like, if it's a white administrator paddling a black kid, is it going to be the same? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I want to know if that's going to be, how do we make sure that's going to be like the equal treatment? You know, and I'm afraid that like, that's almost impossible to police. Well, yeah. And you know, I think, and I had this conversation with an educator uh, recently, um, I was going to make a joke about whether the paddle that they that they whacked you with, Jeremy, did it have holes in it? I don't remember. Well, you remember know, if it's got it holes was... in it, it if it has holes in it, it moves faster through the air. So, I mean, he probably was really laying into you. But um, and we had the paddle that every kid who got corporal punishment, you had all, everybody had to sign it. So it was that paddle that had signatures all over it, <laughs> kind of like in dazed, dazed and confused kind of thing. Um, the uh, the conversation I had was centered on the fact that, you know, what happens, what really happens now in schools, and this has been debated at the legislature as well, and it's, it's a problem. You know, it's, it's one of those things that gets out of hand, is the overcriminalization of every little thing that a kid might do. You know, it, wh whereas years ago, and I'm not even arguing, it's just a good conversation starter, I'm not arguing whether this, is, this part is good or bad, but you, it used to be if you got in a fight at school, they'd paddle you, they'd tell your parents, they would paddle you as well. It's probably, probably the end of it as far as any kind of a record of it. Now when the kids get in a fight at school, they have the resource officer come and slap the cuffs on them and they've got a record, right? Now they've got to deal with that. And so we've seen you know, efforts uh, made by some Democrats and Republicans to say, okay, we shouldn't have kids going around with a criminal record because of something stupid they, they, they did in school, which you know, when we were growing up, none of us would have had a criminal record over any of that stuff, right? Yeah. So I think going forward, I think more of the conversations will be about that and not, you know, something about whether or not they should paddle the kids. Uh, the House, very active this week. They also voted to reverse themselves on the question of punishment for illegal voting. This became one of the huge flashpoints in 2021 as the elections bill was debated. And as you have reminded us, Jeremy, as that was all playing out for months and months and months during the regular session and then multiple special sessions that year, um, it was former President Trump who called Speaker Phelan a rhino over this issue. Remember, it was it was uh, uh, Patrick and Trump and I think Paul Bettencourt and some others who were really upset about this and had said that the speaker needed to reopen the debate on the elections bill. And former President Trump had said if they didn't do that to make this change, to take illegal voting from a misdemeanor up to a felony offense, uh, then Trump was going to try to find a primary challenger for the speaker. Well, of course, that didn't happen. So you have to wonder why we're here doing this. But I do think this about all these elections bills that are out there. There's a slew of elections bills that have to do with Harris County. Of course, it's always right in the 
in the target. It's always right in the sights. So it is the target. It's the bullseye for a lot of these bills. Um, it seems to me as long as they do this, they're probably good with their primary voters all over the state. If they, if they just do what former president Trump had said to do on illegal voting, then I don't know what else they need to do. Do they really need to get rid of the elections administrator in Houston and all of that? As this debate was playing out, John Busey, who's a Democrat from Williamson County, uh, state representative there, he said that the entire conversation has been upside down. We talk a lot about the lack of faith in the electoral process, distrust in the outcome of elections, and people being fed up with their government. But what we don't talk about is the reason for that. It isn't because of illegal voting or so-called voter fraud. And it isn't because the results of our elections are in question, because guess what? They aren't. It's because even though the Texas Secretary of State has repeatedly assured us our elections in this state are smooth and secure and a success and something that we can be proud of, we come down here session after session and pass laws that make it harder to participate and harder to have a say in our collective future. A Republican in this debate, uh, Steve Allison, said that when he offered the amendment in 2021 to reduce penalties for illegal voting down to a misdemeanor from a felony where it had been, he said it was after Attorney General Ken Paxton's office had asked for that change. My understanding was that was on the request or recommendation of the Attorney General's office. That made sense to me. I, so I spent my early first five years of my career in the district attorney's office. I understand the need to bargain and get witnesses uh, that might not otherwise cooperate by giving them a, a lower penalty. So it made sense to some extent. Uh, so that was one reason to, to the cleanup in, in the amendment, to comply with what that committee had done. The committee passed it out and went to calendars and, and didn't proceed from there. There were also complaints uh, during the different discussions about the vagueness uh, in the existing code provisions. So the amendment included some additional specificity. There was also complaints about uh, factual necessities. An example of uh, if you help your aged, disabled grandmother or grandfather, you could be subject to a second-degree felony. So the intent was to try to address things like that. So what he's saying is they were trying to keep people from getting in a lot of trouble if they just made a mistake or if there was some misperception that, hey, maybe you took your grandmother to go vote and that you you know, were then accused of filling out her ballot for her or something like that, that you wouldn't be prosecuted for a felony. It was interesting to see, Jeremy, that the attorney general's office under Ken Paxton immediately on social media pushed back against what Allison had to say and said, no, that's not true. We didn't ask for that change. You know, we've always thought that this should be a felony and we got to get tough on any kind of illegal voting. And this is why I say and, and why I said at the beginning of this this uh, portion of the show is that as long as they do this, I don't know why they need to pass any of these other bills. I know that these things don't happen in a vacuum. I know that from the vast majority of Republican lawmakers, they just need some vote you know, in the legislative process that shows that they got you know, tough on election security. Right. Because this is a big deal for pre former President Trump. They're all afraid of him and his supporters. Um, but as long as they do that, you know, these, these fights down in Houston between Paul Bettencourt and the elections administrator, they're for the rest of the state. Why do any of the rest of them care about that? Yeah, what's, what I keep wondering is like, how far could this go? 
is that you think like okay, one little item under, you know, that, you know, they change is, is one thing, but it, it, you know, where some of these people want to take this issue and then there's going to be a lot of Republicans who are nodding along with this. They want one day voting, get rid of all that early voting. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't want any more mail ballots, period. You know, it's like, you know, certainly not for people who, you know, aren't, you know, you know, you know, it was Bob Hall who, during the Republican convention, was saying that he wanted to eliminate the, you know, vote by mail for, yeah. you know, people like over sixty-five. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, and he wanted to, to have it limited to only those people who can't vote, who were like are out of the county or out of the state. Basically, again, going back to the nineteen eighties. Man, it's like this back to the eighties vibe that we're getting in in these shows recently have been too much. But so you see, like. You know where yeah. they wa- where they want to get this back to is basically like okay everybody put your vote in this hat paper ballots only <laughs> one day yep. and we're gonna have you know old man you know Tom count them all out for us and tell us who won it's like that that's that's kind of where I think some people want to take this thing but that's obviously scary as heck you know when you're talking about you know again it's all about sample size you know a lot of times in these arguments and like I think what people don't understand is that there are millions of people in right. Houston who are going to yes. vote. We're millions as like people go, why does it take them so long to count the vote? Cause there's millions. It's not 62, right. like in loving County, loving County right. will always be first. I, I can guarantee you that the, the fine people of Houston have to count the 3 million votes almost at times, you know, it's like, so, you know, cut them some slack, you know, it's like, let them count the vote already and like not kind of get in their way all the time. You'll like, you like this reference, uh, Jeremy, it's not Dixville notch where there are six <laughs> voters. You know what that is, right? In New Hampshire, it's the first place to vote in the primary where they do it at midnight. And, um, you know, they may have as many as 12 or 13 people vote and they just do it on pieces of paper. And then they announce the, uh, the winner right there. Um, it's the Harris County is the size of a state. It's it's bigger than some States, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the Dakotas are nothing bigger than some States, but has the resources of a County, right? So it's going to take longer to do this. And by the way, it has taken longer to count votes in Houston than in other places around Texas forever under Republican leadership and under democratic leadership. There have always been issues there. And so, and you know, I had a former member of the uh, house elections committee who served on the committee years ago uh, before all of this Trump stuff, you know, where Trump's running around talking about election security as the number one thing, which remember became his biggest issue after he lost Right. I mean, he cared about it before, but it really became a big issue after he lost. There's no, and this is the sickness of all of it, is that you can only trust, if you can only trust an election where your preferred candidate wins, that's not how any of this works. Right. The, the, the great thing about, the great thing about America that I like, at least I liked it, you know, until we got to January 6th, was that if you had a transfer of power, it was peaceful. We didn't riot in the streets and ransack the Capitol because our guy lost. One of the beautiful things about democracy is the loser goes home, right? The yep. loser calls the winner. The loser calls the winner and says, hey, good game. It's like good sportsmanship. Good game. It was a good race. We both fought hard. If you need help in your administration, you call me anytime, right? That's, yep. that's how those calls should go, right? When Al Gore eventually lost at, uh, at the Supreme Court, you know, that was nasty for the time, right? Back in 2000, that was sort of an unprecedented level of challenging all of that at the time. Definitely unprecedented. But at the end of it, he says, look, I don't, I don't like this decision from the Supreme Court, but I respect it. 
my, you know, the people who voted me need to respect it as well. And we cannot, and remember at that time, it was divisive enough. There were a lot of Democrats at that time who felt like George Bush was not a legitimate president. We lived through that, you know, that decade. And, um, it's only worse now. It's only worse now where the, the, the person who lost doesn't make that speech and say, look, I don't like this, but I have to respect it. And if the person at the top of the party doesn't do that, then what would, what, what would cause the rest of the party to do it? They don't. Yeah. As a reporter now, it's like, I, you know, I have to pay attention to whether or not there was even a concession speech now. And then now the question I have to ask at every campaign, I feel like such a jerk saying it, which is like, did you hear from your opponent? You know, did y'all call each other? I, you know, it's now a, a question and it's amazing how rare the answer is. Yes, of course. Like, you know, I know Beto O'Rourke did call, you know, Greg Abbott because I asked, but like there are other instances where candidates just aren't even talking anymore, even when they lose. It's like, I lost and to heck with you. You know, the whole system must be rigged. And, they, and, and what I was saying about Houston, it's like, you think, okay, so why would the Texas Republicans have so much distrust for Houston? You know, they're so slow in getting their votes out and, you know, Harris County, of course, but, but why are they getting so slow getting it out? It's the same thing that happens in Florida, right? You know, Miami's always the last one to report back. You know, same thing in Pennsylvania where Trump was saying, oh, why is Philadelphia coming in now? It's like, well, because right. they have millions of people, you know, in you know Bucks County and they don't have millions of people in, in Harrisburg's County, whatever county that is, <laughs> Altoona. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything whatever. about Pennsylvania. Don't 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 get mad at me, folks. Uh, but uh, but I do know that Philadelphia is bigger than Altoona. So it does take longer by, to count. By, by like, quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, and and just that counting of votes is like I don't I, I don't know why there isn't any more like how that has become part of the smoking gun now for people mm-hmm. who are concerned about like oh of course Atlanta comes in late with the votes oh see it was thrown it's like no they have a lot of people <laughs> that's the conspiracy theory though you know if the conspiracy theory is if it's taken a long time then these this is the way they'll say the, these Democrat elections administrators in these big places will look and they'll figure out how many votes is it going to take to get our guy over the finish line instead of the other guy. Right. But, but they'll worry about that with no evidence, but then not be moved by it when there's literally a recorded phone call from president Trump calling the people in Georgia and asking them to find enough votes to put him over the top. Yeah. <laughs> right. They'll act as if that doesn't matter. Why, Scott, why are you even bringing that up? Why should that matter right now? It shouldn't. The weather's getting nasty, Jeremy. Um, As we record the show here just after four o'clock on Friday, a line of severe storms moving in. And I bring it up because, and by the time most folks listen to the show, this should have moved on by. I hope everybody's safe and everybody's okay. Um, But I'm bringing it up because the Texas House this afternoon adjourned early because the storms are moving in. And this is one day after Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick had just said that the House needs to do more work that the House should be there to pass more bills. Patrick has done this a couple of times. He's gone on Twitter and said, look, let the Senate help you. But he said, we're, we're here in the Texas Senate. We want to help you House members pass your bills, but you've got to pass more bills for us to be able to do that. So the day after, Patrick again says, y'all need to do more work. God sends thunderstorms across Central Texas. And the Speaker said, okay, hey, guess what? We're going to have to send people home because this is Friday. And a lot of the membership is going to go back to Houston and DFW and you know places across the state. So they wanted to get out early in the afternoon. I think they adjourned uh, around 2, 2.30, something like that. I, I think that's about right. Um, so Patrick 
was asked about the standoff between the Senate and the House that we talked about last week uh, by Chad Hasty, our friend at KFYO Radio in Lubbock. Uh, and Patrick suggested, this was the first time I heard him articulate it this way, Jeremy, because he's been saying a version of this, that he will uh, you know, deny passage to some key piece of legislation. And some of us have speculated that must mean the budget, because uh, given what's on the agenda this time around, I don't know what else he would, you know, use as his leverage. Well, this was the first time I heard him say it out loud, that he basically said like, he, he might basically sabotage the budget in order to force a special session of the legislature so that the property tax legislation, which the House and Senate don't agree about, so that that can be worked out. I, I, I mean, important. for you, for property tax reform, yeah. because you've yeah. said this this is the way yeah. we have to go. We've got to go with the Senate plan in order to save yeah. people money. If the House says, yeah. no, we're not going to do your plan, we're the House, I, we don't have to listen to you, sir, we're going to do our yeah. own plan, then what do you do? Well, then I, I will, I will, uh, if, if I will, let's just put it this way, we'll be in a special session. If that's And here's part of the reason. We, we have... Round, let's round it off. Seventeen billion dollars in the budget of both sides. We have sixteen five. They have seventeen three. We have some business tax cuts, different things, but they're about the same. Yeah. Well, you can't pass a budget if you're not spending that money. I mean, if you don't have a plan for it, you can't say, "Well, let's pass a budget. We'll tell you later what we're going to do with it." No. So, if we don't agree to a property tax plan, will it will force a special? on itself, because you won't be able to pass a budget. And constitutionally, that's the one bill we have to pass. And look, we're, you know, Chad, about this whole property tax thing, Here, here's what I share, is that I can negotiate on anything, and I'm willing to negotiate on almost everything. Not my principles and values, but I mean in terms of a bill, because neither side always gets 100% of what they want. You know, there's a change here, change there. And sometimes it's just so the other side can get the votes out. I mean, People see things differently. So we're not trying to play hardball and say it's got to be this way. But on the property tax issue, both of us have a lot of money in for compression, and that means reducing the school taxes. But they have an appraisal cap that doesn't do anything. He says that it's not about playing hardball and that he is willing to negotiate. But what did he previously say, Jeremy, that the Senate will not negotiate about the property tax legislation, right? He has said that, and he's repeated a version of it just there at the end. He said that the appraisal cap legislation from the house quote, doesn't do anything close quote. I think that there are a lot of folks all across the state, both property owners uh, and people who deal with um, the protests of property taxes people who you know are in that business, some of those tax advisors, uh, they would all disagree with what Patrick just said, that changing the, the appraisal cap would not do anything. Right? Now, as far as saving people money, you can have a debate about that. But it's not that it wouldn't do anything. He wants to increase the homestead exemption. The speaker says that, no, we're going to do the appraisal cap legislation at 5% for homeowners and for businesses. This is such a serious policy discussion that did you see that earlier this week, and it, so many things happened. It was. It might be easy to forget this. Earlier this week, the speaker, I think he was sort of signaling that he does not want to be here for a special session. He tweeted out an image of himself shirtless with his surfboard saying that he's ready to catch some tasty waves after the legislature adjourns its gnarly sine die. I wish I was making that up. And then the lieutenant governor answered. And, you know, Patrick, he can't help himself. 
He could have just not said anything about that. It's a silly tweet. It's the speaker there with, uh, you know, with no shirt on the surfboard. Patrick could just let that go, but he can't, right? He, he had his staff. This was from his official office Twitter account, office of the Lieutenant governor. They superimposed Patrick's head on a guy who's on a surfboard riding a wave. And Patrick said that the Senate's plan for property taxes is the right wave to ride. So they're not, they're still not anywhere close to getting this settled up, Jeremy. Well, and, and, and look, and I don't know if, if Patrick has to do much, you know, monkeying around to force a special session. Cause let's not forget governor Greg Abbott on his campaign trail kept saying, I'm going to deliver the biggest property tax cut in history. He can't let these guys fail either. Uh, especially if they're also going to fail in getting number two of his promises, school vouchers. It's like, you know, he's promised both these things and they could both more recent like, not promise, come through. Though. Was that? Well, more recent. Well, I was going to say more recent promise, though. He wasn't really promising people that in the general election. True, right? true. Yeah. Like, Here, you know, but, some- but he's set both these things up, but he can't let these guys not come out with a property tax bill that does exactly what he wants. He needs to at least uh-huh. to get to that $13 million or billion dollar you know, tax relief in order to be able to kind of tell voters he succeeded. Right. And this may be where the governor has to do something that he's very uncomfortable doing, which is be the referee, which is, there, there's a reason that we say the big three, that there are, there are three big leaders in Texas. There's a reason that it's an odd number because if two of them don't agree, the third one has to step in, right? And take a side. And Abbott could come in and say, you know what? I want the homestead exemption or, Hey, I want the appraisal cap legislation. Or he could say, I want a mix of both, which as we, talked about previously, there is a way to do that too, right? So they, they could get there. I did find this interesting and I'll just mention it and then we'll put a pin in it for right now. But in that interview with Chad Hasty, Jeremy, the governor, the, uh, the Lieutenant governor seemed to walk back his school choice rhetoric just a little bit. He declined to say whether he would force a special session about that. What he said was what, what Patrick said was that he would take, basically take his cues from the governor and that he and the governor would be acting in unison on it. Um, but when it came to a special session about school vouchers, Patrick said, I can't tell you what the governor's going to do on that. He, he said, I, I can't imagine that he wouldn't call one about that, but Patrick did not say that he, Patrick would force one about that. He'd force a special session about school vouchers. So we'll just, we'll watch that, watch that space. Speaking of Patrick and larger than life characters last week, you mentioned Jeremy, that it seemed like Patrick got his inspiration for waving money around on camera. From one person in Houston, who would that be? Mattress Mac. Jim. <laughs> yes. Jim McInvale. Mattress Mac, the furniture salesman, and so much more. Beautiful bedroom furniture at reasonable prices. You looked all over Houston. You look- if you grew up in Houston from the 1980s until now, you're going to know who Gallery Furniture is. Gallery Furniture will save you money. You're going to know that's Mattress Mac. If your mattress is older than 10 years old, if you live in Houston, you 100% know who Mattress Mac is. At Gallery Furniture, we maintain a huge fleet of unmarked furniture delivery vehicles. Ask anybody who's Mattress Mac. I've known it since I was a little kid. And I did too. Well, last year, he stepped up his political activism in a huge way, uh, becoming really not just a supporter of the Republican running for county judge there in Harris County, Alex Mueller, but he was central to the campaign. In a lot of ways, he was a centerpiece of the campaign. He was in almost every ad. At, you know, at one point, he was um, on the Twitter feed 
of Alex Mueller, the Republican running for county judge against Lena Hidalgo, he would be included in every two, you know, two or third tweet from Mueller. Um, and of course, as I said, he was in her commercials as well on television. This is my friend Alexander Mueller, who's running to unseat Lena Hidalgo this November and be your next Harris County judge. I am backing Alex Mueller because I trusted in the corruption in Harris County. She is a West Pointer, a Harvard JD MBA, and a mom of two young children. And most importantly, she has integrity. The Houston Chronicle this week did a deep dive on Mac and reporter Jeremy Blackman. It's the other Jeremy. Did you tell me that uh, in the newsroom, Jeremy, uh, y'all called him the good Jeremy or, or you're the bad Jeremy? Or vice well, well I was the one who made that up, obviously, because there was two right. Jeremys sitting way too close to each other. <laughs> yes. Well, for shorthand, we just call him Jimbo. So Jimbo joining us now and uh, contributed to the story. And he says that uh, Mac's activities over the last couple of years that, that was really the genesis for this whole deep dive on this larger-than-life Houstonian. Yeah, I mean, there were really two big things that happened recently. One was his involvement in uh, the county judge race last year against uh, Lena Hidalgo, who he challenged by endorsing uh, her Republican challenger, uh, Alex Mueller. Um, but the other one was an interesting switch that happened earlier this year on his position on uh, gambling, legalized gambling. Yeah. And, um, you know, he had actually taken out a, uh, an ad a couple of years ago where he um, went full heartedly behind uh, legalizing sports betting and casino gambling in Texas. And earlier this year, he, he really did a 180. Um, and, you know, we've been writing versions of stories about Mattress Mac over the years. And some of us at the paper, you know, um, have, haven't been around all that long in Houston. Mm -hmm. So um, it just seemed like it was time to write a, a deep dive. Um, mm -hmm. and we'd just been talking about it long enough, especially in his involvement in the Mueller race seemed, seemed like a new chapter, um, mm -hmm. new enough that it, it warranted some, some deeper exploration. Yeah. A new chapter, a real evolution, because look, when I saw that he was supporting Mueller, I didn't think that much of it in the, in the beginning of the campaign, because it's no secret that he's a Republican. People have known that for a long time. I mean, you can go back to, uh, George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush. He would have been a supporter of them years ago. Um, but with this, he got so active in the campaign, right? He, in fact, he became, I think, central to the campaign. There was one point where uh, you would look at Mueller's Twitter feed, any of her social media, and every other post, I think, was her with Mattress Mac, right? So he was he was right there uh, in the midst of this battle in one of the races that I thought was, uh, if not the most consequential race in Texas uh, last year, it was certainly up there. Uh, you know, in the, across the whole state, it had um, you know a high profile and very interesting. So, what did y'all find out about his political? contributions. As I mentioned, they go back and go back uh, a long time. Uh, but what did you find about who's he, who, you know, who he's donated to, what kind of amounts and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. And just going back to your point about his uh, involved, the level of involvement in the race. I mean, mm -hmm. I talked to Alex Mueller and she was, and, and this is some of the conversations that we really hadn't been able to have with her during the campaign about his level of involvement. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, there were moments where Mattress Mac was calling her on the phone after he'd read a headline about, I mean, it's no secret that his big issue is crime, right? Um, and he, he would read a, a headline that he didn't like, you know, about some crime that had happened. Um, and he'd ask her if it was time to make another ad. I mean, in some ways, it was, it was so involved that it was kind of like, um, 
Mattress Mac against Lane Hidalgo. Yeah, in some ways, almost like he was consulting on the race. Like, exactly. like, like he was the general consultant saying, like, hey, maybe we should do this and maybe we should do that. Exactly. But but to go back to your other question, um, so yeah, we, we tried to piece together um, a picture of his political giving going back all the way to the beginning, back, in, back into the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of that is just kind of federal contributions, um, but... Uh, he's given about 1.4 million, uh, over the last three or four decades that we could piece together. Um, in the early, early years, it was a lot of federal and state candidates, but it was a lot of Democrats actually. I mean, he was supporting the, um, national Democrats, um, state house members who were running. Um, yeah, I mean, there was, uh, we found contributions to us Senator Lloyd Benson, Gene Green, like the Texas democratic party. Um, he really wasn't picky in the early days. And th- these yeah. were the moments when he was really focused on growing his business mm-hmm. and also kind of fulfilling this lifelong dream that he'd had since the seventies of opening his own casino. I mean, that had been his big mm-hmm. dream that he yeah. wanted to do. Um, so yeah, uh, his political giving kind of evolved as Democrats ran out of, uh, favor in Texas. Um, and, and also, I think, like, more recently, as he kind of joined in with the Tea Party movements and stuff, it became more ideological. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, in, in some ways, he's a complex character, and in some ways, he's not. I think mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of a story of there are, there are some donors who are trying to climb the ladder of influence. Yeah. And I really don't think that's the case here. I think Mattress Mac is more just a guy who has a lot of opinions. And he also happens to have a lot of money and sway in the state's yeah. biggest city. Yeah, and I think that it would be, as I said earlier, sort of just an evolution and a natural one in Texas. You know, a lot of the guys who give uh, guys and women, mostly guys though, who who make political contributions in the state, at first they start out as sort of going to the church of what works, right? They would give to your point about not being picky. He would give to Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, I, it's fair to say that when he was giving to more Democrats, those would have been more conservative Democrats, right? So he's always been sort of um, a conservative guy. But you're right; he got even more conservative as the decades unfolded and he became more prominent. Uh, But it really is only in the last two years or so that I remember him being as out there, if you will, with all of those opinions, right? I mean, he's always been a larger than life character, but now we have no, I mean, there might've been a time, let me, let me say it this way. There might've been a time when I would have to guess what he thought about certain things in politics and almost, uh, almost anymore. You wouldn't have to do that at all. He, He will voice his opinion, whether it's on social media uh, or through you know various platforms, he will let people know exactly what he thinks. Now, on the question of gambling, you mentioned that he had this dream of owning his own casino. I don't know that casino gambling is going to be legalized in his lifetime. It may not be in my lifetime either here in Texas. Um, but he's been really making headlines for those monster bets. I think the guys at Barstool Sports had kind of made fun of him for being just being the worst uh, better in the history of gambling because he would lose all the time. Although he had that huge win with the Astros, right? 75 million last year when they won the world series. But this is interesting in the series. Y'all go into, uh, some of the ways he's been able to kind of minimize his downside risk on all that. What, what was all that about? I mean, in a way he's never really losing. I mean, okay. So this is actually the, the most fascinating part to me that didn't really make it into the story. Cause you know, of course, lots of stuff has to get cut. Um, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, as I mentioned, he was really interested in, in starting a casino. Um, and it's not legally possible in Texas right now or anytime soon, it seems. Probably. But in a way, he's found a path to 
kind of having one in his own furniture business. And I'll tell you how it works. So it's basically, um, everybody knows that he takes out, takes out these monster bets, but he also um, leverages it by tying every bet that he does to a some sort of promotional event at his store. Right. Mm-hmm. So if he wants the Ast- if he if he puts two million dollars on the Astros winning the World Series, he's going to tell ev- every customer who spends over three thousand dollars, let's say, on furniture at the store, you know, during the se- during the season, that if the Astros win, they'll get their three thousand dollars back. And so it's kind of like, and then and then he he just traces the the amount of revenue that he's getting. And as he gets more revenue and he needs to make sure that he's covered in case the Astros do win the World Series, he needs to make sure that he's going to get enough from his winnings to cover the cost to pay back his customers. Mm-hmm. So the more revenue he gets, the more bets he takes on the Astros. So mm-hmm. the $75 million that he wins, I mean, we don't really know how much of that he actually pocketed, but yeah. a good chunk of it actually just went back to... Uh, you know, reimbursing his customers. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it's just like all leads to sales. So it's kind of a genius way of, of, of running your own casino. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, it's, it's, it's what you expect from a larger than life Houstonian. The thing about Houston is there's no rules there. People, I, this is one of the things I loved about covering news in Houston for a decade. There's just no rules there. People do whatever they want, yeah. right? This is, the, and that's the way uh, one of the veteran uh, journalists that I used to work with down there used to talk about. Is it. like, oh yeah, people will just do whatever it takes. You always, and you know, in Houston, there is always the attitude that nobody cares about what you were doing before. It's, it, the, the the attitude is always, what are you doing right now, right? And so I think in a lot of ways, someone like Mac, who's been part of the DNA of Houston for so long, he would constantly, this just makes sense as I think about it, talking to you, he would constantly have to, in a way, sort of reinvent himself. He's he's doing what he did before, but just a new amped up version of it. And then you add in this uh, this sort of um, the, the sort of casino-like operation that he has going on, uh, and it just makes sense. Uh, I mean, well, I was just going to say, I mean, like, if you think about, he's just always finding ways to both contribute and make an impact in the community, but also advertise. I mean, right. we talked to people who grew up in Houston schools who mm-hmm. remember him forty years ago going in and doing like you know anti drug programs. He he would be he would just be showing up at assemblies and right. talking about these things. And and these are this was like a celebrity to these kids, you know. And then they'd go back and talk to their parents, and you know he he's helping. I mean he's he's talking about anti drug stuff with mm-hmm. with kids, but he's also getting his name out there. So it's just sure. it's just a fascinating element of of who he is. Win, win, win. Fascinating series there. You can check it out in the pages of the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com. That'll do it for the show. However you're listening, hit the subscribe button. We appreciate it. That's the way to do it. Keep on giving to the uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society here in Central Texas. We have uh, blown right past the halfway mark for our goal of 25000 ScottBraddock.com. You can get the link to donate right there, ScottBraddock.com. And, of course, subscribe at QuorumReport.com, HoustonChronicle.com. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.